I don't know if we should do a song. Did we do it last time? Probably. Probably did. Yeah. Queenie, what do you think? I mean, we've done it on more heinous ones. That's true. Okay, we'll just do it. And we can't, yeah, we can't not do it. Leave the dog alone because the dog didn't do a damn thing and now you're trying to feed him your bodily Thou fluid. Shall kill all of your hands and a dog fish a tampon out of the garbage and they write the Bible you, but you can pretend tea. like you will. A dog. Wow. It's an episode it's about indigenous Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Straight Up Evil. My name is Jocelyn. I'm the brunette. We've got Katie. She's the redhead. Hello. And we have Carly. She's the blonde. Hi. We are coming at you with a our second full episode dedicated just to missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. We did one, I, I want to say in 2020, right, Quinnies? Yeah, it was feels like it was God, a while it ago. was already that long ago. Jeez. Mm-hmm. I think it was Jesus. like end of 2020 that we yeah. did our last uh kind of combination episode. So we're just gonna bring you a bunch of stories of active missing persons cases, an unsolved homicide. These will all be active cases. We'll include all the information in the show notes of anything that if you have a tip or you want to submit any information, you can do that. Katie, you want to start out with some statistics about this very topic? Indigenous women and girls are 10 times more likely to be killed than the entire national murder rate. Murder is the third leading cause of death for Native American and Alaskan Native women. Native American women under the age of 35 experience a higher murder risk than any other demographic. In Wyoming, where Gabby Petito's body was found, a missing and murdered Indigenous People Task Force report found that 710 Indigenous people, mostly girls, have gone missing since 2011. Their stories are almost never even reported. And if they are, they're covered in stereotypes and victim blaming and victim shaming. More than one in two Native women will be raped or sexually assaulted in their lifetime. One in two. That's insane. It is. It's awful. It's awful. According to a report by the Urban Indian Health Institute titled Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, 5,712 cases were reported in 2016, and only 116 of them were logged into the Department of Justice database. One study found that the real driver behind whose story is and isn't covered is actually the police. They're the first ones to give the info to reporters. For more information, information on this, you can search either hashtag MMIWG or hashtag MMIR, which is missing and murdered indigenous relatives. I think that's really important that we get that information out. I think it's really important for people to it know is. that these are actual, you know, this is actually happening. And what's the reason behind this? Why don't we hear about this? Just like Carly said, right, we have missing white girl syndrome, where every major missing persons case that gets a lot of coverage. And we've seen this right with Casey Anthony and Lacey 
Peterson and Gabby Petito. There's a certain type of person that makes it onto the news. Why is that? For a lot of reasons. Some of them is just straight up discrimination. And some of them is that you have a tribunal or tribal police force doesn't have the opportunity to speak to the media the way that government law enforcement does. Right. So you, how are they going to get the word out if no one's asking? My first case is Nevaeh Kingbird. She was last seen around 2 a.m. October 22nd, 2021 in Bemidji, Minnesota. Her mother, Teddy Wind, last saw her 15-year-old daughter, Nevaeh, at their home earlier that evening when Nevaeh had told her she had planned on going to the movies with a couple of friends. And then after that, they were going to go to a party. And Nevaeh was seen by her friends leaving this party, which is in the area of Carter Circle in Southeast Bemidji. But once she left that home, she moved on to a second home in the Southview Terrace Park. And she apparently left that house alone about an hour later. And that would technically be the last time Nevaeh was seen and family and friends haven't heard from her since then. So Nevaeh is reported as an indigenous teen and like near Bemidji, there's like the Red Lake Indian Reservation, the White Earth Indian Reservation and the Leech Lake Indian Reservation. They mostly consist of either Chippewa or Ojibwe, but I don't know specifically like if she's enrolled in either one of those. It's just she is labeled as an indigenous teen either way. But according to Teddy, her mother, who had assumed Nevaeh was with her friends when she left, like the friends that she left with to go to the movies, said it wasn't like her daughter to not contact anyone or to go on her social media because like everything has been quiet since she was last seen. Teddy also said that Nevaeh was a home buddy and it really wasn't in her character to go out drinking or go to a party at all. So like it was very weird. The behavior that was going on that night when she went missing is definitely not normal for her. Teddy would officially report Nevaeh as missing in the early morning of October 22nd, a few hours after she was last seen. There's a lot of, there's a lot online about giving the mom flack because the way that it was portrayed was that she waited a day to report her missing. When in mm-hmm. reality, it was technically the same day because Nevaeh was seen in the very, very early hours. But for some reason, everyone was like really trying to pin it on the mom that your 15 year old daughter's missing and you haven't reported her missing for a day. It was the technically the same day. So mm-hmm. like everybody can just chill out. Calm down. It got me really mad. <laughs> so since Nevaeh's disappearance, friends and family members, police, everybody have conducted several searches of the area where she was last seen. If you look at the map of like where Carter Circle and like the Southview Terrace, there is a lake somewhat near there. They don't really mention the lake, but like it doesn't give me any good vibes. The police department did provide maps to the searchers, volunteers. They offered tips of like which areas of town should be searched first. And during one of these searches, there was a potential piece of evidence that they found while digging around in the snow. A man had found a sweatshirt that had been possibly worn by Nevaeh. And after they thawed it out, it was confirmed that it had been Nevaeh's grandmother's sweatshirt that Nevaeh had left at her mom's house. Oh, wow. Right. But the thing is, while her family believes that somehow it could be connected to her disappearance, there's not been any reports of like if there's any forensic or any other evidence on the sweater. And Mm. it doesn't seem to be what she was actually wearing when she was last seen by her mother. But it's weird. It's really like weird. how else would it have been? How like how would it have got out there? Was it planted out there? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. Uh, see, I was thinking. Uh, it's so funny. Uh, <laughs> we Queenie's been doing this a long time. We're like somebody planted it. Exactly. <laughs> but it would. They had to thaw, so it had to have been out there for a little while. Could she have? It was covered by snow. It was like they had to dig. So a few days after Nevaeh went missing, police were made aware of a social media post that indicated that Nevaeh was abducted in the north end 
by a black man driving in an unknown vehicle with Louisiana license plates. But this is the problem. While social media can be such a great source of information, it can get the word out there like it's never been before. It also can cause really big issues with investigations. It's also truly the worst. It's also just the worst. Just terrible things about it. So, but that, you know, that yeah. being one of them though. Right. It was getting the word out, but the detectives in Bemidji were able to determine that the information was not remote connected to Denise's disappearance and like not even it was apparently originated from an incident posted on social media in Oklahoma not related to her and then people were going off trying to go off on this direction and they're you know meanwhile they're wasting like man hours investigative you know yeah resources exactly so there was a big issue with this and the detectives were like if you see anything or hear anything tell us but do not post anything because you're just making it worse right so unfortunately that was like a really big setback in this in this case. Teddy said her daughter loves her friends and family, especially her siblings and her nephew, and she would never willingly say away the song without contact. She also said Nevea loves school, knows her language and her culture. Teddy just wants her daughter home. Nevea Kingbird is described as a 15-year-old indigenous female. She's around 5 foot 4 and 120 pounds. She has long dark hair with highlights, brown eyes, and a scar near her left eyebrow. Last seen wearing jeans, athletic slide shoes, and some sort of outerwear. So for more updates information, there's a Facebook page called the Bring Nevea Kingbird Home. But anyone with any information about the case should contact the Bemidji Police Department at 218-333-9111. I mean, I'm like, okay, were the, like, obviously the, the, the friends in on it. Someone the, she met at a party. Was she That trafficked? is not the last like, story we're going to have tonight about, oh, she went to a party and I yeah. haven't seen her since. Like, Quinny, when you saw that murder was the third highest leading cause of death or whatever for these women yeah. and girls, did you see what number one and number two two were do you know no see because i feel like addiction substance abuse is probably mm-hmm. up there sure. because there seems to be this stigma with at, with almost every single story that i came yes. across for this episode Me too. that's Me like too. she was probably on a bender on drugs yeah yeah she was probably on drugs and it's like maybe she was it doesn't make her case any less important yeah but what happened to her that's what we want to exactly. know like it's a, right it's, what does that have to do with anything we would still like to right. there's still someone out there that no one knows what happened to them well it's just like you know what I mean? said about the victim shaming and the blaming like right mm-hmm. it's like if they are all drug users they their families still want to know where they are this one is super tragic Quinny's this her name is Emily Rissling she was 30 two years old when she was reported missing on October 14th of 2021. So she really has not been missing all that long. Yeah, I was going to say it's recent. She was last seen on the Yurok Reservation on October 11th of 2021. So there seems to be a 72-hour lag in reporting her missing, but I can't really figure out why. We know that she was last seen on October 11th and reported missing on the 14th, but I'm not sure the circumstances of that. Mm. So the Yurok Reservation is in Hum County, California, but Emily herself is a member of the Hoopa tribe. And the search for Emily has been a pretty amazing example of intertribal and law enforcement efforts. They have used services from the Yurok Tribal Police, Hoopa Tribal Council, the Hoopa Tribal Police, and the Humboldt County Sheriff's Office, like all four agencies working in tandem. There's minimal coverage, obviously, regarding Emily's case, but it seems that she is a mother and she did leave children behind when she disappeared. It's not clear whether or not the children were actually in her custody or care 
care at the time that she disappeared. But Emily's case is especially tragic because she was having a widely known apparent mental health breakdown. She was having very well-documented mental health struggles. So she had been arrested shortly before she disappeared. Someone called and reported a fire out of control on the Hoopa Tribal Cemetery. And when the tribal police got there, they found the fire and they found Emily standing next to it completely naked. No. Mm -mm. So she was arrested, booked for both arson and indecent exposure. And in theory, she should have been kept for those charges in custody for those offenses because she set up out of control fire and she was completely nude in in a public place, but they released her almost immediately. And And her friends and family are really upset about that. Who's to say that somebody else wasn't involved in that? Her family's point is like having her incarcerated is not ideal. That's not what we want, but It's one way to get her help because she's in a confined environment. She could, in theory, see a doctor and it can stop her from being a danger to herself or the public. They wanted her kept there. Why would you release her? And they didn't release her to anyone. It's a Mitrice Richardson situation I where they just let Mitrice. her, they just oh let her out. God. But you have to wonder, like, if she stayed in custody, would this yeah. have been different? Wow. We still have no idea why she was released or how she was released or the circumstances of her release. We have no idea. If there's anyone listening who is a member of the Hoopa tribe and has had their their loved one's gravesite damaged in that fire there is a phone number you can call it's 530-625-4202 and it's a community effort to rebuild the portions of that cemetery Um, and we still don't know why she was naked and like the fire to begin with right like how do we even know that we have no context whatsoever she was just next to it and nude and somehow they got to she's at the fire and she's having a a breakdown which her family did say she was like having documented mental sure. health struggles. Right. So it did, it seemed like she had, this had been an impulsive act mm-hmm. that, I mean, that's what they've been led to believe, but we really don't know because there's not very much information. So again, she's 32 years old. She was 32 at the time she disappeared, which was just about four months ago. She's described as an indigenous female, five foot two with short brown hair and brown eyes. We do not know what she was wearing at the time of her disappearance. She's approximately 160 pounds. If you have any information regarding the disappearance of Emily Rissling, please contact the Humboldt County Sheriff's Department, 707-445-7251. I'm like thinking, okay, they should have gotten like a rape kit. Like they, she should yes. have been checked out by a physician physically and evaluation. All the yes. things. But it like, just seems like it was very like immediately like some like some chain of events and she was released. Yeah. And we don't know if that was because maybe they realized that she had nothing to do with it. But if she didn't, right. who did? Why was she there? What happened to her? And the- That's absurd. So my first one is her name is Kimberly Iron. She was 21. She left her home in Billings, Montana on September 22nd of 2020. She left her three children behind with their grandparents in Hardin, Montana. Kimberly had grown up on the Crow Indian Reservation in Montana with her family, but for most of the prior year, she had been staying in Billings. On September 22nd, she had contacted her father, Curtis Iron, and she called him from different places, which was is very strange. Like over the course of the next few days, she starts calling him and it's from these different places. So she calls him from Las Vegas, Nevada, and she calls him from Oxnard, California. 
And every time she's calling him, she's like really upset and she's crying and she's saying that she needs money so that she can get home. Her father told Dateline that Kimberly never gave her exact location when she would call and that she would also just go silent and like kind of like ghost him sometimes for hours and then sometimes for like a day. So it was just like this on and off thing of her like calling him. He said that the calls that she made were always really brief and that his daughter always sounded like she was on speakerphone. Like it always had like this weird echo in the background, Mm -hmm. which he always thought was so weird. He would ask if she was okay and she would say that she was all right, but he would, he claimed that he just didn't believe her. Like he knew his daughter and he just did not believe that he knew something was wrong. Parents? No, dude. They seriously do. The last time that Kimberly contacted her father, who actually lives on the Crow Indian Reservation, was October 6th of 2020, and no one has seen or heard from her since. This is considered an active missing persons case, and it is being investigated by the Horn County Sheriff's Office in Hardin, Montana. Kimberly is 5'2". She weighs approximately 126 pounds, and she has brown eyes and light brown hair. Anyone with any information is asked to call the Big Horn County Sheriff's Office at 406 6659780 and her case number is 20-01288. Oh, they're so terrible. They really they just, are. They break my heart. That sounds crazy, but also there is absolutely no information about this woman mm. hardly anywhere. Yeah. Which like just again goes to show you. So many of them are like that. So many. So many of them. This is an older one. She's been missing since the 80s. Linda Louise Jackson. She was not reported missing until law enforcement actually went looking for her. So police were interested in the then 19-year-old indigenous woman. She was from Seattle, Washington because she was a possible witness in the Green River Killer case. Damn. Oh. Okay. So was she is she a sex worker? Yes. Yes. Wow. Oh my God. And they wanted to talk to her and they went looking for her just to talk to her about that and realized, oh wait. So our listeners probably already know, but like just in case, the Green River Killer was a serial killer who was responsible for killing many women and teenage girls in the state of Washington in the 80s and 90s. And most of the victims were sex workers and underage runaways. And the name comes from the first five victims that were found they were found in the green river and this is before the killer's identity was known gary leon ridgeway he strangled his victims he would dump their bodies in forested and overgrown areas in king county and would often return to the bodies to have sex with them and in total ridgeway would be convicted for 48 murders so like the police were heavy like trying to get this dude wanted to talk to linda louise and can't find her they're trying to find her she's a possible witness And she was also a sex worker at the time of her disappearance. And when police located her family, they discovered that Linda hadn't been heard in from over 10 years. Remember when we did the Poughkeepsie sex workers and it was like eight months before anybody thought because they're just thinking, oh, she's moved on or she's got a new, you know. Wow. Like, oh my God. So after an initial investigation, police estimated her missing date as May 3rd, 1980. 83. And it is suspected that Ridgway murdered her, but there's no evidence linking her to his crimes at the time. It just, it just, the connection is weird, right? So like, that's really Definitely. all they have to go on. But considering how many women and sex workers he was 
convicted of killing, like it, the odds are unfortunately very possible. But it is also a possibility that Linda was a victim of sex trafficking because we know that happens as well. But her case remains unsolved to this day. Linda Jackson was 19 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 59 at the time of this recording. She is described as an indigenous woman, but her community is unknown. She was five foot six, 110 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. And she used many aliases at the time. Her name is Linda Louise Jackson, but she also went by Jeanette A. Alexander, Lynette Anderson, Takesha Jackson, Letitia McNeil, Wylinda McNeil, Linda Jackson Wells, and Wylinda Latasha Wells. That's like Sante. I know. Like, that's that is Sante a level. <laughs> but anyone with any information regarding Linda's disappearance or her current whereabouts is encouraged to call the King County Sheriff's Office at 206-205-3432. Yeah. 10 years. Like if they weren't looking for her just as a we possible still, we witness, wouldn't even... we would have no idea she was even missing. Next up, I have Larissa Lonehill. Larissa Lonehill, 21 years old when she was last seen on October 3rd of 2016. Larissa texted a friend and said that she was going with two male friends from the Pine Ridge Reservation to Rapid City, South Dakota. Larissa is a member of the Lakota tribe, but she also lived on the Pine Ridge Reservation herself. One of these men apparently, quote, dropped Larissa off at a party, Carly. Sure, sure. And she has never been seen. Again. So at the time that Larissa disappeared, at the time of her disappearance, it would appear that Larissa had a pretty significant addiction to methamphetamine. She was only 21, but her family had broken off contact with her pretty much, essentially. Larissa had a child when she was 19, but the child's father slash the child's father's family had custody. And Larissa's sister says that a few days before she disappeared, she told Larissa to enroll in a substance abuse program after she found her smoking meth in her parents' bathroom. So it was happening. She was definitely using drugs. Her sister caught her, said, get your ass into a program. Unfortunately, that's like their last interaction. So in total contrast to all of this, everyone says that Larissa was a devoted mother who never missed a visit with her daughter, even if that meant walking or hitchhiking to get there. At the same time, again, we don't have a whole lot of information on her case regarding especially the police investigation, but they have said that they do believe that she's dead. They have not said why, but law enforcement does believe that she is dead. And in fact, the Rapid City Police are currently offering a $5,000 reward, not for information regarding her disappearance, but information that helps locate her body. They must have an idea of what happened to her and are unable to prove it. Talk to the dude who allegedly dropped her (sighs) at a party. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Who has never been identified, by the way. So I certainly hope, you know. See? Mm Mm-mm. I certainly hope he's not like, I don't know, <laughs> married to one of our listeners or something. You know what I mean? Like, I just, oh, I no. just hate, hate the thought of that. I know. Larissa Lonehill was 21 years old at the time of her disappearance. She is described as an indigenous female, 5'2 to 5'3. She's 120 to 130 pounds. She's very pretty. Brown hair and brown eyes. She has very distinctive paw print tattoo on her right hand. It's pretty sweet. If you look her up, like on the Charlie Project, you can see a picture of the tattoo. It's pretty mm-hmm. nice. And there is a $5,000 reward right now for information leading to the location of Larissa's body. If you have any information, please contact the Rapid City Police Department at 605-394-4134. If you do not want to talk to a U.S. government law enforcement facility specifically, you can also contact
contact tribal authorities from the Oglala Sioux Tribal Police at 605-867-5111. To confidently be like, we need information where her body is, that I don't, I don't, I don't. They must know. They must must have, they must totally be like, these guys are bad news, Mm -hmm. like involved, whatever, but just can't prove it. This is a unsolved murder. 33-year-old Victoria Vicky Jane Eagleman was newly divorced and she had just moved back in to Lower Brule Lakota Indian Reservation in South Dakota Mm -hmm. with her five children to live with her parents while she looked for a new job. And on July 28th, 2006, Vicky told her mom, June Left Hand, that she was going swimming with some friends. And that was the last time that June saw Vicky alive. Just real quick. The going out with friends thing doesn't seem to be working out well. And like, I know everyone has friends and nine times out of 10, you go out with your friends and everything's fine. But it's not going so fine today. I don't like it. That day, Vicky and her friends made plans to go swimming on the Mississippi River. And the area that they planned to visit was well known by locals as like a popular drinking area. And according to Vicky's stepfather, who was a local or is a local tribal police officer, Vicky's boyfriend had returned to the family's home sometime that night without Vicky and was asleep by the time he woke up for work the following day. Just goes home and goes to bed. When the boyfriend was asked about Vicky's whereabouts, he explained he hadn't seen Vicky since he was dropped off from swimming the previous night. Okay. So, but where's your girlfriend? Who is she with? Like, what do you mean? You just came home. Yeah. Okay, bud. The day after Vicky went swimming, her sister came home and explained to their mother, June, that she had seen Vicky earlier in the day, but she had dropped her off somewhere. Her sister also told their mother that Vicky and her boyfriend had apparently gotten into an argument the previous day when everyone went swimming. So when Vicky had not been heard from or seen in a few days, her mother, June, officially reported her missing on August 3rd, 2006. Now, despite the fact that Vicky's stepfather is a tribal police officer, officials had not started searching for Vicky. They told June she was probably partying somewhere and she would come back. I'm sorry. She is a 33-year-old, newly divorced mother of five living in her parents' home, has an argument with her new boyfriend, but she's in, she's just out partying. She'll mm-hmm. come back. Maybe she was a partier. I don't know. But nothing I read pointed to that being true. Where'd you, you pulled that right out of your ass. It's a stereotype <laughs> again. You pulled that right out of your ass. Pull right out of your ass. Well, we're not done because shortly after this, Vicky's children found her glasses and a ring in the street about a block away from their home. The items items had been smashed, possibly run over, and they were then given to the police as evidence. So later that month, August 22nd, so the community took it upon themselves to start their own search for Vicky. Law enforcement did not assist in the search. Your stepfather is the police officer and no one's going to look for your missing stepdaughter with the five kids at home. So the community would be looking for Vicky. They used horses. They're on ATVs. They're going on boats. They're on trucks. They're on foot. They are doing their damnedest. And like, thank God for them. The search would last two days. When on August 23rd, Vicky's body was found just off the Native American scenic byway in Lower Brule in a ditch along Medicine Creek. So this is in a very remote area of the reservation. Apparently she was nude and she had been sexually assaulted. Her clothing was nowhere to be found, but she was last seen wearing a tan shirt with spaghetti straps, jean shorts, a light blue scarf and flip-flops. Don't know about the glasses because they were found in the street right a block away from the house. Wow. With her ring. 
So once they find her body, the area was immediately sectioned off into a crime scene when law enforcement officials arrived on the scene. Like, oh, by the way, there's a crime, you guys. Thanks for also, searching. Really, really would have appreciated if the police were the ones who came upon that so that everything could have been secured and exactly. we could be all right. Wow. Wow. Right. Cool. So who even knows what went on? You know what I mean? Yep. Like of no fault of the community searches. searches no, they have no just choice. Volunteers like, come on. So once the law enforcement officials arrive on the scene, it was determined that Vicky's cause of death was severe blunt force trauma to the head. After her autopsy, it was determined that Vicky had also been sexually assaulted and her cause of death was confirmed as the blunt force trauma. To add to the frustration, this makes me so angry. I can't even, I can barely even say it. Vicky's case file, including crime scene photos would be found outside of the police station on the street. It's unknown how they got there or why the case file left the building at all. Once again, we ask the question why Carly doesn't hold the evidence. Literally, I put, okay, but luckily a community member returned it to the police as soon as they found it. And then I put, please let me be in charge of all of the evidence. All of the evidence. Explain to me how an entire case file with horrid crime scene photos of a nude sexually assaulted assaulted woman woman just lying in the street outside of the police station. I feel terrible for the person who found it and picked it up and was like, oh, what's this? Like the kids are finding her her glasses. Like community's finding her body. They're finding her case file. Like how many times can this woman be utterly failed? So in October of 2006, members of the Lower Brule community as well as the South Dakota Coalition Against Domestic Violence and sexual assault, organized and hosted a memorial walk for justice in Vicky's honor. And at some point in the investigation, the FBI joined the Lower Brule Tribal Police in their search for answers, which is actually pretty good. Like it's not, mm-hmm. yeah. unfortunately, it's not common for the FBI to get involved. So during their search for answers to Vicky's death in April of 2007, the FBI and the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe offered a $15,000 reward for any information that would lead to the arrest and conviction of the individual or individuals responsible for her death. And as far as I can see, that reward is still offered. Vicky was a victim of domestic violence most of her life, including her boyfriend at the time of her death. She once came home with a head injury that required 33 stitches. It is unknown whether her boyfriend has ever been officially questioned in regards to Vicky's disappearance. Vicky was known as a kind, quiet, and devoted mother to her five children. Her mother, June, said that while she was living in her home, Vicky was not only an amazing mother to her children, but also lovingly tended to her nieces and nephews as if they were her own. Her family has had struggles with law enforcement taking Vicky's case seriously and hopes to one day have some answers. If you have any information on the murder of Victoria Eagleman, please call the Lower Brule Police Department at 605-473-5444. The fact the FBI is involved makes me think that it is not the boyfriend. And it makes me think that it is, even though, I mean, he's, I'm not, he doesn't, he doesn't want any points with me. He's not a good person. He's something larger scale though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's That's what it makes me think of. And, but I, you know, you said blunt force trauma, sex offense, the whole thing, but it must've been really, really bad, Quinnies, for the FBI to be involved because then they're starting to think okay, there could be a violent predator out there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's uncaught. It must have been a bad, I feel so bad for those volunteers who stumbled across her. I know. You Jesus. know, like they should never, this is like Jessica Easterly's family. They yes. should never have had to be doing that. Like they Ooh. never found her clothes, any of her items of clothing, her glasses are a block away in the from middle the of house. the road. 
Yeah. Yeah. All the road. She yes. didn't even like she was swimming. How did they get back there? Yeah. The case file in the street. Yeah. I that's need, just, that's I need just someone true. to be held accountable. I need answers. I need a cocktail after that yeah. one. This is Ramona Jean Schuler. Ramona Jean Schuler. She is an Aboriginal woman. So she is, this is it, from British Columbia, this case. She disappeared from Fort St. John, British Columbia in November of 2003. She was 36 years old at the time that she disappeared. And she was a member of the Big Stone Cree Nation. Devoted mother of three who was living with her husband at the time that she disappeared. From what I understand, her husband was not the father of her children. A few weeks before Ramona disappeared, Ramona's sister Becky says that Ramona told her that she was being abused at home by her husband who was worried about a drug debt. And Ramona had been recently hospitalized after being attacked by her husband, who, quote, had purposefully disfigured her face. Jesus. I don't know. I, I don't have okay, any you, more information I was say, you don't that. know how she was disfigured by any no. chance? Yeah. It reminds me of, like, cultural honor. Yes. Stuff, yeah, the woman in the river. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It yeah. makes me feel, like, gross in the pit of my stomach. It makes yes. me have this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. Mm -hmm. And to make matters worse, Ramona is remembered as the Joker of her family. And when you see her picture, you can just see it like very funny, Mm -hmm. making her family laugh, making her kids laugh. She was reported missing after she stopped contacting her family. Her sisters stopped hearing from her. And so they reported her missing, you know, because they're like, it's not like her. We haven't talked to her. We can't like, it's just what happened. And come to find out no one knew where she was. Where have the kids been? I think that the kids were not with her. She was living with her husband, but I don't, I'm not sure. Like the husband was not the father of the children. Right. And I'm not sure what the setup was. Since then, Becky and Roxanne, which are two sisters have gone through six investigators in Fort St. John, but that police department has never given up on her case. Six, it's been passed to six different investigators. They're still actively investigating it today. She would be 55 years old at the time of this recording. You know, I'll include a picture of her in the show notes. I don't have a physical description. I don't have a, what she was last wearing, nothing, absolutely nothing. This is 2003. But if you have any information about the disappearance of Ramona Schuler, especially if you're from an Aboriginal community in British Columbia, please contact the Fort St. John Royal Canadian Mounted Police at 250-787-8140. Yeah, it's a bad one. Um, And then this is crazy, Quinnies. I am not, I have nothing written. I'm just going (laughs) to tell you the story of this woman. Okay. Okay. Another Canadian case. Her name is Jacqueline Crazy Bull. She was 43 years old. She was a member of the Blackfoot tribe. She was born on October 8th of 1963. She died in a stabbing rampage in Calgary, British Columbia on July 11th of 2007. She was one of five people attacked that night and a single stab wound killed her. They have made zero arrests to date in the, in in the stabbing. Oh my God. What they stab her in the heart or. So her sister, her name is Sandra Many Feathers. She was with her that night. A group of strangers pulled up in a vehicle and asked for help. And of course, Jacqueline got up 
to help them. Um, and her sister said it was just very much like her to do something like that, walked right up to the car and they stabbed her and drove away. It was described on the news as a random stabbing rampage. Four other people were attacked that day, but Jacqueline was the only one who died. Do we know if the other victims were also part of the Blackfoot tribe or? I don't know. They don't make mention of if the if the other the victims other were people. also women, right. if they were also gotcha. indigenous women. I have no idea. Um, her sister speaks very, very poorly of the investigation, quoted as saying justice in terms of First Nations people. It just doesn't exist in Canada. No one has ever been charged in that. I just can't wrap my head around the fact that somebody could go on a fucking stabbing rampage like... and just murder someone in the street and we and like not four be pe- found. five people are attacked one person died and we still have no idea who that was it's almost been 20 years there's so many so many witnesses more so like in the mm-hmm. car the pe- yeah. you know, the perpetrator whatever and we still have no answers for all we know it could be some douchebag kid seriously just, being, just doing stupid, stupid. yes exactly like going out to murder her but like just the placement was exactly you know exactly right, right. and she ended up dying but like i just what find it so fuck? hard to believe that you can't figure out who that was oh my God. i just find it so hard to believe like they yeah. were in a car mm. people saw like multiple like it's no how do you first of all how do you know that it's the same person Right. If you don't have some idea exactly of right. the car or the plates the make, or whatever, model, like something. Anything. You're exactly right, Josh. I don't get it. I'm like, how do you tie them together? And then also for 20 years, not know who I'm sorry, for 15 years, no. you don't know who yeah. they are. Like, yeah. are you no, fucking no, no. kidding because me? No like, one's because no one wants to take any initiative in trying to fucking further investigate these these cases. But then meanwhile, Gabby Petito gets a million hours of coverage which granted she like everyone like she should have gotten the coverage but so should everybody else like yes exactly shouldn't have gotten it everyone at least balance it out a little bit spread it around how do we not know that her case vicky's case maybe it's a fucking cover-up all the way to the top we don't know oh yeah i'm leaving these things on unsolved Mm-hmm. What are we having to be led to think here? What if it was some douchebag teenager, an entitled teenager whose parent is like a big wig and some sort of government official or rich CEO of some shit and they got paid yeah. off and they know it's the same perp. But what if they what if they had it? the report of the license plate and the picture of the car and they dropped it in the middle of the street <laughs> and somebody picked it up and walked person. away with it? So crazy. Jacqueline Crazy Bull. Obviously, she was murdered senselessly and with no explanation on July 11th of 2007 in Calgary. She was a member of the Blackfoot tribe. If you have any information regarding the random stabbing incident that injured four people and killed Jacqueline that night, please contact the Calgary police at 403-266-1234. Or if you would like to speak with the Calgary Crime Stoppers to uh, submit an anonymous tip so that you don't really have to talk to the police. You can do that as well. That tip line is 1-800-222-8477. It's not okay. Every single one of these. It's not okay. Don't make clean. It ain't clean. The house parties have got to go. 
never again. Like we're not, we're not. house parties. Gotta go. Fucking hiking. Gotta go. Speaking Bye. to anyone. Out. Ever having a spouse. driving a car. <laughs> driving a car. Out. Be having a spouse. Driving a out. white van. Ever letting your children out of your, your own sight. Done. Out. <laughs> Gone. Done. Gone. Leaving a window open at any point. Never. Don't do it. Don't ever. Rolling do it. down Done. the window of your vehicle. Out. Never. Oh, Cooling a God. pie out the window. <laughs> Never. Having Thanksgiving dinner. Out. We're gone. Lock yourself <laughs> inside gone. of a metal box. Check. Panic Inviting room. anyone Check. into your house ever. Oh, oh, I can't. oh God. Physically walking outside. <laughs> Done. Going to the grocery store. Having done. a basement. Out of it. We're done. We're super done. <laughs> right, Love Queenie. you. See you next you. week, Queenies. Mm-hmm. Okay, bye. bye. Listen to Straight Up Evil.